I want to be closer to you guys. Is that okay? All right. Now, only people in the front row got to worry if I spit or something. You know, the rest of you are fine. If I do, you'll be healed. It's like holy spit. It'll be great. It'll be great. Do you guys have a great Thanksgiving? Yes. All right, so I got to take a little poll. We did this in the last service, and this is, it helps me determine how hard I've got to preach today, see how holy you guys are. How many of you are, are between honey ham and turkey? Raise your hand if you're a turkey person. Okay. Ooh. Ooh. Man, I'm going to be wore out today. All right, raise your hand if you're a honey ham person. Oh, that's a good, okay, all right. Pretty, pretty split, I would say. The, the turkey people, y'all need extra grace today because everybody knows honey ham's where it's at. I mean, come on. It's all the flavor. Come on, you got to love a good honey ham. Yeah, well, I hope y'all had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I know I did, and it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Olin Carter. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, would love to do that after service. I serve here on our teaching team, and if you are new to Freedom House, something that is very special about our church is that we do everything here as a team, including the teaching and preaching of God's Word. And so every Sunday, every campus, we have a live communicator, a pastor, bringing God's Word, um, and that's a huge part of our senior pastor's vision for this house, not to build it on a one single person, on a personality, but to build this church on the vision that God has given us. So can we give some honor to our senior pastors, Pastor Troy and Penny Maxwell? They don't ask us to do that, but I always love to honor them. Because of that vision, I get to do what I get to do. And also, that creates a space for you as well. There is something amazing. There is a place for you here at Freedom House Church and would love for you guys to step into that. Now, before we jump into God's word today, I wanna take just a moment, greet those that are joining us online. We have an online campus and we actually have people right now joining us from Maine, Washington, D.C., Michigan, Tennessee, New York, Connecticut, Florida, Delaware, Illinois, and Canada. Will you guys give it up for our online campus? So glad you were with us today. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And we're wrapping up right now a series called A Thousand Hills. Now, how many of you have been here for at least one of the other messages? Thousand Hills, awesome, awesome. This, this series um, is, is really impactful. And, and most of us, I think, have probably heard that verse quoted before. Um, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Very popular verse. It's on a lot of Christian art and things like that. You see it everywhere. But it's interesting when you study and you read the whole chapter of Psalms 50, God is actually rebuking his people. But what's interesting, he's not rebuking them for not giving because he says very clearly, he says, I can't rebuke your giving because your offering, your sacrifices are continually before me. And so the people were giving. And so why would God rebuke a people, a nation, his people Israel, when they were giving regularly, consistently? Because he rebukes their heart, the why and the how of their giving. And, and it's important for us to know as God's people why we give, how we give matters more than how often we give or how much we give. God wants us to give with the right heart. And so when you read that, I encourage you, if you haven't, through this uh, series, read Psalms chapter 50. Um, incredible. God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills because he wants us to understand that he doesn't need anything from you and I. He's not sustained by our offerings. He doesn't need us to give for him to be God. He's saying, I don't need anything from you. He says, you should give 
thankfully and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why? Because he wants to get something to us and through us. And so God asks us to give. Why? Because he loves us. He wants to bless people. And isn't it amazing that as God wants to bless people here around the world, we get to be a part of that? Isn't that incredible? God offers us an opportunity to be a part of that, which is just awesome. So we're wrapping up this series today. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. The title of my message today is A Widow's Faith. A Widow's Faith. We're gonna be looking at the story of Ruth. If you wanna turn there in your Bibles, Ruth chapter one. And man, when I was preparing this message, you know, some messages just kind of come, you know, God will give me an idea and I'll start to, to, to read and study. And, you know, it always takes a lot of time and energy to write a message. But um, this one was a doozy. I mean, I wrote three different messages. I wrote the message. I was like, this can't be right because, you know, I'm so intelligent. I'm smarter than God, right? So God gave me an idea. I'm like, God, you don't know what you're doing. Let me take over this thing. So I wrote, wrote a whole other message. And then the wisdom of my, my lovely wife, she's like, you know, you got to preach on Ruth. Because God's speaking to you about Ruth, and I'm like, oh, you're right. I got to obey God. I got to go back to Ruth. And so the reason I believe that God kept bringing me back to this story today, that we're going to go through this whole story of Ruth, is because I believe many of us, many, many of you sitting in this room right now, you believe, mistakenly believe, that your life doesn't matter. That what you have to give what you can do to serve, what you can offer other people, what you can offer to God. There's many of us sitting in this room right now and we believe we're insignificant. That what we do, what we have in our hand is not enough. That what I can give to kingdom builders, what I can do to serve in, in the, the, the kids ministry or greet at a door, whatever it may be, serve a cup of coffee. We, many of us feel like it doesn't really matter. That what I do doesn't matter. It doesn't move the needle. And I think you're going to see today through the life of Ruth, through what God does in this story, that your life matters, that you matter, that you are, you can be significant in the kingdom of God. And you can really be used by God to change the lives of other people. Let's jump in here. Ruth chapter one, verse one. It says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Now, you gotta be a little impressed. I got all those names right just then. Gotta love some Old Testament names, amen? Verse three, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. It's a tragic story. The story opens up in a, very difficult season. And it starts in this little town called Bethlehem. Now, we're all familiar with Bethlehem, right? It's getting, we're past Thanksgiving. We're moving into the Christmas season. We know the songs, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? We've, we've heard about Bethlehem. And 
What's interesting about Bethlehem is the Hebrew word, it actually means house of bread. House of bread or house of food. It was a a place of provision. And we know now, looking back, what they didn't know then, that in this town, this little house of bread, that God would provide for his people a godly king. The story starts saying that this was in the time of the judges. And when you read the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges ends by telling us that every man did what was right in his own eyes because the people had no king. And so this starts a process, a transition for how God's people would be governed. And so they want a king, they get a king, but he's not a good king. And through this town of Bethlehem, God brings a godly king, a little shepherd boy who killed a giant, King David. It would also be the place where God would provide the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our savior. He came to us born in Bethlehem, the bread of life born in the house of bread. But although Elimelech and Naomi lived in God's place of provision, they lived in Bethlehem, this house of bread, house of food. When a tough season came, famine hits Israel, they looked elsewhere for their provision. They left Bethlehem. They headed across the border to a place called Moab. Now, I've heard a lot of people read a lot into this story at this point. I've heard people say that maybe Elimelech died because he was outside of God's will. Maybe they shouldn't have left Israel. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe their sons died because it was God's judgment on them. Maybe God was judging that they left the house of bread, the place of provision, Israel, and they went to this ungodly country called Moab. But the truth is, when you study the story, when you just read the Bible for what it says, the truth is the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell you that God is judging them. It doesn't give a reason for Elimelech dying, for the sons dying. It it doesn't say. And sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations in our lives. Seasons of plenty cause us to assume God's blessing and his approval. Seasons of famine or loss in our lives, times when we're hurting, when we're devastated, can cause us to assume God's disapproval and his punishment. But the truth is that we don't always know why what happens in our life happens when it happens. Don't we want to know that? I know I do. When things that are bad, that are tragic, that are painful happen to me, I'm upset. I'm angry. I want to know, God, why? Why would you let this happen to me? Why now? Because, I mean, come on. Y'all have met me. Why would anything bad ever happen to me? I deserve nothing but the best. I expect everything to go my way. I mean, does anyone else ever feel like that? Isn't it crazy? Like we say, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, but yet I'm shocked when anything goes wrong in my life. I expect everything to go right all the time. And when things go wrong, I want to know why. But we don't always get to know why. Sometimes you might not ever know why something happened when it happened or why you went through a particular season in your life. And in the Bible, when God's people would rebel against him, when they would do something openly sinful and rebellious, he would let them know. It doesn't leave us in the dark. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see it in Psalms 50 where God rebukes his people. He would speak to a prophet. He would warn them, hey, turn around. 
You're sinning. You're doing what's wrong. Judgment is coming. I'm not going to bless you. Turn around. But there are other times, I know in my life, when God's not bringing correction. He's not, he's not telling me to turn around. No, I'm, I'm just living my life. I'm trying to serve the Lord. Elimelech was just trying to feed his family. There's a famine in the land. He goes where he thinks there might be some food. I know sometimes in those situations in my life, when God is quiet, I believe in this story, when God is quiet, the emphasis is not on what is happening to us, on why it's happening. The emphasis is on how will we respond. Maybe some of you are in a tough season right now. Maybe you're in a season of plenty. How will you respond? In times of plenty, will we continue to grow? Will we stay obedient? Will we give more? Will we grow the kingdom? Will we stay humble? Will we honor God? Will we keep our integrity? In times of struggle, will we do what we know is right no matter the cost, no matter the risk? Will we step out in faith or will we shrink back in fear? When Naomi decides to return home to Bethlehem, Ruth and Orpah are faced with this very decision. How are we gonna respond? How will they respond to this situation? In verse 11, it says, but Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Do, why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? She's kind of exaggerating here. She's trying to push them. Hey, you don't want to go with me. She said, would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her, her mother-in-law. What it really should say is she kissed her goodbye. Because as we continue to read, we see she left. She was out. She said, it's not worth the cost. I'm going to take the easy road. I'm going to go back to my family. I'm going to go where I'm, I can be, uh, I know there's provision where it'll be easier. And she leaves. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. See, Ruth made the decision to do what was right no matter the risk. She knew there was great risk involved in returning to Israel. She basically is telling Naomi, look, I don't know how this is going to turn out, probably not good, but I will go down with the ship. You die, I die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. No matter what happens, I'm with you. 
I remember I had a situation like this in my own life once. Now, nowhere near as dramatic as Ruth. My life wasn't in danger. But I was young, I was kind of new in the mortgage business, and I was working with a man who had given me an opportunity, had kind of been a mentor to me, been very good to me. And we were trying to build something new, but it was tough. I didn't know if we were gonna make it. I remember times looking through my couch cushions for change to put gas in my car. I didn't know if I could pay the mortgage that month. I didn't know if we were gonna have you know, money for food. I mean, it was tough. It was uncertain. One day I get a phone call from this lady at this national home builder, and I'd done a little work for him, and I didn't know what she wanted to talk about. I get over to the meeting, and she says, hey, I wanna give you my territory. The company's given me this whole new deal, and I wanna, I wanna give you, and it was the premier territory in Charlotte. She threw some numbers at me. There were some zeros. I mean, we're talking some money. More money as a young kid I had ever dreamed about making, and there were benefits. There were stock options, I mean, there, there was, there was, it was just an offer, man, like put on the table. And I knew in my heart that God kind of wanted me to stay put, to be loyal, that Gary and I were building something. And I knew in my heart that that was the way God was kind of leading me. But let me tell you something, money talks, right? You got to think I had a sleepless night. Like, man, there was a lot of zeros on that piece of paper. I was like, come on, God, this way is uncertain. This way is difficult. I don't know what's going to happen, and that looks really good. That looks really easy. I'll never forget the day I get back to the office. I had my laptop. I get out in my car, you know, I'm just going to do some work, and I just stopped like I froze in the parking lot. It was a moment of decision. I took my bag, and I just dropped it. I looked up to heaven, and I'll never forget I said these words. I said, God, I'll go down with the ship. That's exactly what I said. I said, I'll go down with the ship because I believed God was telling me, I want you to stay put. I want you to be here. I wanna bless you here. And I said, you know what? This whole thing might fail, but whatever happens, I'm gonna stay put. I'm gonna go down with the ship. And that's exactly what Ruth did. Ruth says, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm gonna step out and have some crazy faith and I'll go down with the ship. And God used her act of generosity. See, it was a small act, but it required big faith. And it's not the size of the offering. It's the size of our faith that matters. It doesn't matter how much you have to give. It doesn't matter how much you can do or contribute. It doesn't matter how important or significant other people think you are. It's the size of your faith that matters to God. That's what God cares about, not the size of what's in your hand, the size of the faith that's in your heart. He will use our lives when we act in faith, when we do the right thing. But the truth is, we don't always see God's plan right away. We don't know what he's up to. And some of us in here today, we might be doubting our part in God's plan. God, are you really gonna use me? Is what I'm doing significant? What does my little kingdom builders offering, I mean, is it gonna really add up to anything anyway? I mean, Man, I saw those numbers today. We're raising hundreds of thousands, I mean millions of dollars. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I only have $100 to give. Or I only have $500. Or I only have $1,000. And you might be thinking, is that gonna move the needle? Is that really gonna matter to anybody? Is that really gonna make a difference? But this story teaches us how God accomplishes his great plan through something called 
providence. Everybody say providence. Now, providence is not flashy. It's not something we like to talk about a lot. We all love miracles, right? Everybody loves a good miracle. And here at Freedom House, we love miracles. We believe in miracles. In fact, we have seen miracles. And miracles are awesome. But when you read Scripture, God most often moves not through miracles, but through his providence. If you really look back at your own life, I would wager you would see that God has moved in your life most often, not through miracles, but through providence. So what's the difference between providence and miracles? Miracles are supernatural acts of God that defy the laws of nature and display God's power. Think about the parting of the Red Sea, right? Moses goes out there. The sea is literally cut in half. They're walking through the sea as on dry ground, the Bible says. And they're looking. I mean, it says there were like walls of water on the side of them. You know they saw whales swimming by and sharks swimming by. Not one person doubted if God was involved. They didn't go, huh, I wonder if the ocean just happened to part today. You know, it is a Thursday. Sometimes this happens on a Thursday. I mean, there was a big wind last night. Not one person said that, thought that. No, every one of them knew, man, this is God. This is God. Even the Egyptians saw it and knew, man, God is doing something here because God is showing off a miracle. God displays his power. But providence describes acts of God concealed in natural events, used to orchestrate and accomplish God's plan. Sometimes what we think of as things just falling into place are really God's providence. I just happened one night, you know, I was, uh, you know, long weekend, I was wore out, my friend was after me, go to this party, and I just, I don't like parties, I don't want to go, but I decided, okay, whatever, I'm going to go to the party, I just happened to go, and then I just happened to bump into this young lady at the party, and, you know, we just happened to strike up a conversation, and Next thing you know, we were out all night talking and having coffee. And next thing you know, we were engaged. We were married. Next thing you know, we're having kids. Isn't that how we talk? I just happened to bump into this person. I just happened to get this job. I just happened to be in church on this specific day. Just happened to occur in our small little finite brains. We can't see God's hand at work aligning events, putting us together creating the timing for what he wants to accomplish in and through our lives. Ruth chapter two, verse one, it says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be. I had never seen that before. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. She just happened to be on that day of all the farms and all the fields in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of provision, the farming center, like where, where people are growing crops. She just happened to be on that day in that field with this man who happened to be a family member who happened to come by. The owner of the field shows up that day. Just happened that way. I'm sure it was coincidence. 
God had nothing to do with it, right? I mean, it just happened to be, just happened to be on that day she's in that field. And as Ruth gathers grain, Boaz notices her. He is checking her out. He likes what he sees. He asks about her. And upon hearing about her act of loyalty and faith, he offers her the opportunity to stay together in his fields with his protection. The story of Ruth is a story of grace. Ruth finds favor with Boaz, who owes her absolutely nothing. Ruth isn't even a Jew. And when you read through, it's only four chapters. I encourage you to read the whole story of Ruth. Over and over again, God makes it so clear. He calls her the Moabitess. Why does he do that? Why does he describe Ruth over and over and over as the Moabitess because they were idol worshipers, because they were Gentiles, because she had no rights to expect anything from God. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't part of God's people. She had no reason to expect anything. She had no real hope, but she was just crazy enough to believe. She finds favor with Boaz. What did she do to position herself for this favor, this grace? She did two things. Number one, she believed. And number two, she gave. All through scripture, you find stories of Gentiles, of people who didn't know God, giving to God's people, and all of a sudden they get God's attention. There's something about when we believe and when we give. When we give, sometimes we don't even know why. We don't even know. We just, we just give to God, to his people, and God takes notice. She pledged allegiance to the one true God. She offered the only thing she had to give herself. And in arguing with God about this message, I kept saying, God, I've got a bunch of other verses and passages that are better like giving, you know, thousand hills. I mean, we're talking about kingdom builders. I can, I can put a better message together than this, God. I mean, like, why do you keep bringing me back to Ruth? And God spoke to me one day reading through the story and he took me to that fact that she offered and gave everything she had. He said, Olin, what bigger act of generosity could there be? This widow, this Gentile, this Moabitess with no hope, no expectation of anything said, where you go, I go, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she said, and I'll go down with the ship. No matter what happens to you, what happens to me, I'm committed. Dr. Mike Heiser, he's an amazing theologian. He's got a, a sermon on YouTube called Salvation Depends on Believing Loyalty, Not Correct Doctrines. It's an awesome message. I've listened to it several times. He uses the story of Naaman to illustrate that through both the Old and the New Testament, salvation comes by God's grace and is received by people who have faith what he describes as believing loyalty. Believing loyalty boils down to this. They pick the right side. See, there's only two sides. There's God's side and everyone else. And I believe sometimes mistakenly as modern Christians, we look at faith as a scientific exercise. Like it's something we're convinced of 
by reading a book or attending a class or looking at evidence in a laboratory. But that's not biblical faith at all. Biblical faith is a lot more like getting married. It's pledging your loyalty, your allegiance to someone you know, you love, and you trust. That is biblical faith. It's relational in nature, and God responds to that kind of faith. And Ruth chose Naomi, her people, and her God, the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who needs nothing from us, but who rewards us when we give by faith. Now, the story doesn't end there. It's a lot more to it than her just getting permission to gather a little more food. She runs home. She tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, about the kindness, the favor of this man named Boaz. She's excited. Naomi gives her some instruction, some, some motherly advice to go to Boaz and offer herself as a wife for him. See, in Israel, there was a law for redeeming on behalf of close family members. It was called being a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. Maybe some of us have heard the term before, kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was someone who, at his own expense, paid off the debt of a relative. Now, I'm going to say that again. A kinsman or family redeemer was someone who at his own expense paid off the debt of a relative. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like somewhere else in the Bible, I've read about someone who at his own expense paid off the debt of someone else. Let's keep reading. It extended beyond just finances. If a man died and left a widow without an heir, his brother had the obligation to marry the widow and provide an heir. This close relative was called the Goel, meaning redeemer. Ruth obeys her mother-in-law, goes to Boaz secretly at night. She offers herself because he is a relative and can be their Goel or their family Redeemer, and Boaz responds here in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, yes, it is true that I am a family member, but there is a Redeemer closer than I am. There was another man. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Now the story starts to get interesting, starts to heat up a little bit because Boaz wants Ruth and Ruth wants Boaz. There's a little romance in the air at this point. He is very interested in her and he is qualified to redeem her, but there's someone else that has the first right of refusal. This is important because it tells us that Boaz and this other man had a right, but not an obligation to become a family or kinsman Redeemer. See, Boaz is a type and shadow of Jesus. What is so beautiful about this story is that when Boaz brings this other potential redeemer, this other man, this other family member to the town elders, he wants the land, but he doesn't want Ruth. See, he brings him before the people and he says, hey, you can get in on this deal. You have the first right. And this man, he's interested because he wants the land. And he says, yeah, 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 tell me more. I'm in, I, I got a little money set aside. I can buy this land. I can increase my holdings. This sounds pretty good. 
But when Boaz tells him, yeah, but you also have to take Ruth and you also have to take Naomi, the man says, whoa, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm interested in that anymore. It's, um, uh, I've already kind of got a family thing going here. I don't, I don't think I'm up to pay that much, take on that much responsibility. So he wanted the land. He didn't want Ruth. He wasn't willing to pay the price to take on the responsibility because if he had a son with Ruth, that son would become heir to that land and would eventually inherit it. So he could put a lot in and maybe get nothing back out. He was thinking about himself, but Boaz doesn't need the land. Like somebody else I know, somebody that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Boaz was already rich. He's not interested in the land. He wants Ruth. He's interested in her. He wants to do the right thing. He wants to be a blessing. He wants to help the family. He doesn't need the land. He just wants Ruth, and he's willing to pay the price. And our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, he looked through space and time. He saw you. How is he our kinsman? Because God put on human flesh to become our brother, to become one of us so that he could go to the cross willingly and pay the price. Why? Because he wants something from me? No, because he wants you. He wants us. He just loves us that much. He was willing to pay the price. Ruth chapter four, verse nine. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear from among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. What an amazing story of God's providence. When Ruth pledges her loyalty to Naomi and to God, she has no idea what God has in store. She doesn't expect any of this. She doesn't know that God is setting her up to use her in this way, to, to bless her, to give her a new hope. They were both just trying to survive another day. Naomi feels terrible because her loss and her tragedy is going to ruin Ruth's life. She tells her, go home. Don't follow me. Obviously, God's turned against me. Everything's going wrong. Leave me be. Let me just go die. You have a hope. You go back to your family. But Ruth wouldn't let go. She said, no, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give my life. I'm gonna serve. I'm gonna have faith in God. And what the history books might not tell you is that moment on that day when Ruth clung to Naomi, when she said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That was one of the most pivotal, pivotal moments in all of human history. Because when she made that small act of faith and generosity, it led not just to her marriage to Boaz, but it also led to a son. It says in chapter four, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you 
and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, through Ruth came King David, and through his royal line came Jesus Christ. There's only five women mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, and one of them is Ruth. This Moabitess woman, this widow who had nothing, this woman who was unclean, who came from this country of idol worshipers, who wasn't a Jew, who had no expectation of receiving anything from God. And through God's providence, her generosity changed the world. Through her act of faith, God brought Jesus. It makes me think of another widow, a widow at Zarephath. God spoke to the prophet Elijah, a similar situation, a time of famine in the land. And he says, hey, go to Zarephath. There's a widow there, and I will make provision for you there. Why would God send the prophet to a widow who has nothing in the middle of a famine? So Elijah goes. He meets with the widow. The widow says, hey, I just got a little bit of flour left in my hand and a little bit of oil left in the jar. I'm gonna make a little bit of food, like a little cake for me and my son. We're gonna eat and then we're gonna die. Sound familiar? Whatever happens, I mean, this thing ain't gonna end good, man. I'm just gonna make some food. We're gonna eat and then we are going to die. And the prophet says, okay, that's fine. You can do that. But first, first make some food for me. And God will bless you. I wouldn't have done it. Most of you wouldn't have done it. Let's be honest. She had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'd have looked at that man. You must be out of your mind. But I'm not a widow. See, all through scriptures, God used the faith of a widow to show us the heart of generosity. This little widow with her son, ready to die, says, all right, I'll do it. She goes and makes some food. She brings it to the prophet. And the Bible says throughout the whole famine, her flour and her oil never ran dry. The faith of a widow. It reminds me of another widow that Jesus talked about and praised. She only had two mites, basically a penny to her name. Jesus is there. He's watching all the people come to church, bring their offerings, and all the rich people, the significant people, the big people, they're pouring in their offerings, making this loud noise, showing, out, showing off to everybody how significant I am. Look how much I'm giving. But Jesus gets excited about the widow. He calls his disciples together and he says, come here, come here, come here, come here. You see this little widow woman, she gave more than them all. Why? Because out of her lack, she gave everything she had. And I wonder how many of us sitting here today still, you know, just, just had Thanksgiving dinner, still just enjoying our family, still kind of, you know. How many, I wonder how many of us are sitting here looking at what's in our hand and thinking, God can't do anything with this. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not gifted. I can't, 
sing up on the platform. People don't know who I am. I'm not influential. This is all I've got. I've just got this little bit in my hand, and I wonder how many of us sitting here today look at what's in our hand, this little bit that God has entrusted to us, and we think, God can't use me. God can't use this. I'm not significant. But the truth is, your life matters. Your life matters more than you will ever know. And when you make one act of faith, one act of generosity, there's a ripple effect that happens that touches the lives of people you might not ever even meet. When I was writing this message, it reminded me of a story I heard once about a man named Norman Borlaug. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Norman Borlaug. Nobody. Such a shame. Great man. Great man. And I was listening to one of my favorite authors, favorite speakers, Andy Andrews. He was telling this story about Norman Borlaug. See, Andy was in a hotel room once. He was about to go give a big speech to a company or something or TED Talk or something like that. He's a pretty famous guy. And he was, said he was actually sitting there ironing his shirt. And he hears on the TV Peter Jennings, so it's quite a few years ago, comes on the news and Peter Jennings says, the person of the week is Norman Borlaug. Now, Andy got excited because he knew a little something about Norman Borlaug. See, Norman Borlaug had won the Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize because he had studied the hybridization of corn and wheat in arid climates. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but when he won the award, scientists had calculated that because of his work, he had saved the lives of two billion people. Not two million, two billion people. See, he invented something called dwarf wheat. And in places like the Sahara Desert, arid climates where they can't grow enough food, because of Norman Borlaug, these people now had food to eat. His invention had revolutionized agriculture. It had saved the lives of two billion people. And so for saving the lives of two billion people, he gets to be person of the week. Pretty impressive, huh? Should at least got a new car or something out of that. I mean, you save two billion people, you think, you know? But what got Andy's attention about this story was that although Norman was an amazing man with an amazing story, Andy knew that it wasn't, it wasn't really Norman Borlaug who deserved the credit for saving the lives of two billion people. See, really, wasn't Norman Borlaug, really it was a man named Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was vice president of the United States under FDR, and I know what a lot of you are thinking, wait a minute, wasn't Truman vice president under FDR? And if you're thinking that, you're correct, but the interesting thing about FDR is he was president for four terms and he had three different vice presidents. And one of them, was a former secretary of the agriculture named Henry Wallace. And Henry Wallace loved plants. He loved science. He was intrigued by what plants and science could do to help mankind. And when he was the vice president, he used the power of his office to create a small little station in Mexico to study the hybridization of corn and wheat for arid climates. And he hired a little no-name scientist, nobody ever heard of before, named Norman Borlaug. 
So see, without Henry Wallace creating this station, creating this opportunity, Norman Borlaug would have never saved anybody. So really, when you think about it, it was really not Norman Borlaug. It was really, really Henry Wallace who should have been person of the week, who really saved the lives of two billion people. Unless, maybe it wasn't really Henry Wallace. Maybe, just maybe. The credit belonged to a man named George Washington Carver. Now, we've all heard of George Washington Carver, right? Yeah? Raise your hand if you've heard of George Washington Carver. Yep, almost everybody. He invented, he's the peanut guy, right? And he invented 266 things we can do with the peanut, all of which we are still using to this day. This guy was a genius. He invented 88 things from the sweet potato. If you can come up with 88 things to do with a sweet potato, you're smart, right? All of which we are still using to this day. I mean, George Washington Carver has his name on buildings. He's famous. We learn about him in school. But the most impactful thing he did in his life was actually not all those inventions, all those scientific breakthroughs. It actually wasn't that at all. It's something he did when he was 19 years old. 19 years old, he was in university. He was just a student. And his dairy sciences professor would bring his little six-year-old boy on Saturday and Sunday evenings to hang out with this brilliant student he had named George Washington Carver. And his son would come to do these botanical expeditions with George Washington Carver. Now, the little boy, his name was Henry Wallace. And so it was George Washington Carver who put the love for plants and science inside of the six-year-old little boy who would become the Secretary of Agriculture, who would then become the Vice President of the United States, who would then plant a station in Mexico for the study of hybridization of corn and wheat in arid climates, who would then hire Norman Borlaug, who would then invent dwarf wheat, who would then save the lives of two billion people. And so when you think about it, really it should have been George Washington Carver that gets the credit for saving the lives of two billion people. I mean, don't you agree? Should have been George Washington Carver. Unless, maybe, maybe it should have been a farmer in Diamond, Missouri. Man named Moses, his wife was named Susan. They lived in a slave state, but they didn't believe in slavery. And this was a problem for some of the people in the area, these psychopaths named Quantrell's Raiders, they would come through farms and villages at night, destroying, killing people. And one January night, the Raiders came through Moses and Susan's farm and they burned the barn. They shot some people and they drug off a lady named Mary Washington who refused to let go of her little infant, George. Now, Mary Washington was Susan's best friend. And because of that relationship, Moses put out word all across the county to set up a meeting with Quantrell's Raiders, hoping maybe I can do something. Maybe I can save Mary and the, the baby. Two days later, he had his meeting. And he took a black horse one late one evening, and he rode several hours north to crossroads in Kansas. And there he met with four of Quantrell's Raiders, men sat on top of their horses with these white sacks over their head, holes cut for their eyes, holding torches, guns. 
And they could have shot Moses. He didn't know what was going to happen. But that night, standing there at those crossroads in Kansas, he traded the last horse he had on his farm, that black horse. He traded that horse for what they would throw him in a little burlap sack. They just threw it down, rode away. Moses runs over to the sack. He he ripped it open and there inside, inside he found a cold, naked, almost dead little baby boy. He ripped open his shirt and he took the baby and he put him in close to his own flesh. He bundled him up. And that night he walked that baby out, talking to him the whole way, saying everything's gonna be all right. We're gonna honor your mother Mary, a woman that he knew at this point had to be dead. He said, I promise you, I'm gonna raise you as my own son. And it was that night that Moses and Susan Carver adopted a little boy named George Washington. So I don't know about you, but I think it was Moses and Susan who saved the lives of two billion people. It was really them who deserve credit for all that had happened. Unless, how far back could we go? How far back could we go to discover who really saved the lives of those two billion people? How far back could we go to find where that story really started and how far forward in the future could we go in your life to see what impact your life is going to have the impact of one act of kindness the act of one act or the impact of one act of generosity one act of faith in God Moses Carver had no idea his selfless act that night would save the lives of 2 billion people And Ruth, this widow, this Moabitess, she had no idea that her act of loyalty, believing loyalty, would bring Jesus Christ into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. He used Ruth, and he wants to use you. Let's pray. God, we just lift up to you what's in our hand. Some of us here today, God, we we don't have a lot. But God, what we have, we want to give it to you. We want to entrust it to your providence. We want to see the ripple effect, God, how you can change lives, impact people here around the world, God, if we'll just believe you. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you right now in this room, in this place, we ask you to move on our hearts. We ask you to give us that faith to trust, even when we can't see it, when we don't understand it. God, give us that faith to trust you with our lives. right now I know there's some people in this room and maybe 
Maybe that story touched you. Maybe you hear that and you think, man, I want to be like Ruth. I want God to use me. I want to, I want to have believing loyalty. I want to see the ripple effect from my life. Let me tell you where it starts. In every story, in every situation, in every life, it starts by trusting in God. Not one of us is worthy in and of ourselves. And I think the reason why all through Scripture, God uses stories of widows because he wants us to understand it's not about what we have in our hand. It's about our faith, our willingness to believe God. The Bible says so clearly in Romans that if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. If that's you today and you say, man, I want to be saved. I want to know God. I want to leave here today with an assurance that I'm right with God, that God can use my life. If that's you today, if you're online, I want to ask you right now, simple act of faith, if that's you, believing loyalty, just God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to confess you. You're going to be my God. If that's you right now, will you just lift up your hand by faith? Just saying yes to God. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Amen. Amen. Listen, we're going to pray this prayer together. We're just going to say this by faith. And church, let's all join in together online. Join in with us. Pray this with us. Right now, just say these words out loud. Believe them in your heart. Say, Father God, I trust you. I choose you. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He rose again and he is Lord. I confess, I acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Right now, I am saved. God, give me a generous heart, a heart of faith. Give me the faith of a widow. In Jesus' name.